The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome to Scorebox this Thursday morning. You're watching it with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. U.S. stocks gain for a second straight day with Wall Street turning positive for the week. Earnings season intensifies. Wait for this. 88% of S&P 500 companies that have reported so far already beat expectations. A Bitcoin gets a boost as Elon Musk says Tesla will likely restart accepting payments. There you go. Uh, while some of the world's biggest crypto bulls double down on their support at the B-Word conference. I might pump, but I don't dump. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's not a case of, um, I definitely do not believe in in getting the price high and selling or anything like that. Um, So, uh, and I would like to see Bitcoin succeed. The U.S. and Germany finally reach an agreement over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but the deal faces imminent criticism with Ukraine branding it a geopolitical weapon of Russia. Meantime, in corporate news, robotics giant ABB sees orders jump 32% in the second quarter, but warns of rising raw material costs and squeezes on supply chains. The CEO joins this show along with bosses of Roche and Givaudan. Let me take a look at Roche. Uh, Up so far this year, 15.2%. Had a decent old rally, actually, since its May lows, where it was trading around about 297 Swissy. And as you can see, um, put on the best part of 20% since then. Are the numbers good enough to justify that recent rally? Well, group sales up 8.1% at constant exchange rates. Um, Pharmaceutical division, though, has seen sales fall 3%. Sales growth in the second quarter, though, uh, look like they are, excuse me, uh, 4% growth following a first quarter decrease of 9%. Newly launched medicines up 30%, cons- compensating uh, from a continued impact from biosimilars. The diagnostics division growth sales, well, as you would expect, diagnostics with COVID as well, up 51% due to high demand for COVID-19 tests and strong momentum in routine testing. Uh, IFRS net income increases by 2%, but down 3% in Swiss francs, whilst core earnings per share are up 6%. They are confirming their 2021 guidance and adding uh, regarding the pipeline positive study results for immunotherapy tech-centric in early lung cancer, encouraging data strengthen Roche's portfolio in neurosciences and hard-to-treat blood cancers as well. By and large, it looks a rather positive statement, but the person who can tell us uh, definitively is Juliana, who joins us now. Good morning, Juliana. Good morning, Steve. Well, it does look by and large like a positive set of results from Roche. Roche uh, all year long has been a story of diagnostics performing extremely well given their suite of COVID tests. They do everything from antibody to antigen to PCR testing. And they were the first out the gate in China all the way back in 2020 with a PCR test to detect COVID-19. So diagnostics continues to perform well today. Their drugs division, however, has been lagging. And last quarter, we saw a, a challenging quarter for 
for the drugs division, pharmaceuticals specifically. This quarter, we've seen sales decline as well, but not to the same extent. So perhaps some stabilization coming through there. And in terms of the uh, commentary and the outlook for the year ahead, Roche has confirmed its guidance for 2021, which should be seen as encouraging. We've got Severin Svan, the CEO of Roche, saying that we've achieved good results in the first half, primarily thanks to demand for new medicines and COVID tests. And this new medicines point is key because Roche's broader equity story is all about whether drugs in their pipeline, new medicines, will be enough to offset the erosion from biosimilars. And they did comment that erosion in today's release, as you mentioned, Steve, uh, in the outset here, that newly launched medicines up 30% compensate for the continued impact from biosimilars. Now, looking ahead to um, the further commentary from Roche, and I know you guys are going to be speaking to the CEO shortly. One interesting thing, aside from COVID, to pay attention to is any commentary on Roche's Alzheimer's drug. They've got a drug in trial right now. And we were talking yesterday about the controversy surrounding Biogen's recent uh, FDA approval of their Alzheimer's drug. So we'll be looking for any commentary around what their plans are, whether they look to, are looking to expedite the review process for their Alzheimer's drug as well. That's a key focal point for investors today. All Steve? right. Looking forward to uh, speaking to Severin Schwann. Uh, as Juliana was saying, we will be speaking to him at 8 Central European time. Right. U.S. markets. Well, there you go. What was Monday all about? Uh, apparently <clears throat> not a lot, according to uh, the people who have bought the market since then as well. Look, we didn't say you should buy the dip. What we did say was uh, people who had bought the dip in the previous nine or 10 declines had done pretty well out of it. And my goodness me, what a very, very fast uh, uptick we've had uh, from our lows. We put on over 500 points uh, on Tuesday's session. We put on 286 points on the Dow in the last session. So much so so much so that week to date, and let's have a look at these week to date moves as well. The Dow is up 0.3%. We're only three days old and we have seen extreme volatility to the downside and two very aggressive upside days as well on these US indices. The S&P is up seven tenths week to date. The Nasdaq is up 1.4% week to date. So what is the catalyst here? Well, let's just move straight on, <coughs> excuse me, to the earnings stocks as well, because a lot of companies reporting so far, uh, we started the earnings season only, of course, like late last week. And yet companies such as J&J, Coca-Cola, Verizon, uh, Chipotle as well, other names uh, to the fore, left, right and centre, 73 companies, uh, Interpublic has reported as well. 73 out of 500 companies have reported in uh, the S&P 500 so far. And it's no surprise to you, no surprise to anyone that there are more beats than misses. But um, 75% of companies, it's uh, a big part, 75% earnings growth is what we've seen so far, let alone the beats. The beats is coming in at 88%, which is way above the historic level, which is somewhere between 60 and 70% as well. So 88% of companies are beating consensus. We've had 73 companies. So what's that? Roughly 73 out of 500. So you, a, a decent chunk already have reported. Nowhere near you know, 50% so we can get a, a decent level. But 54% earnings growth was seen at the start of the quarter. We're now at 75% earnings growth. That is why the markets are running. But then you look at the treasuries. And yes, we've seen the yield pick up a little bit, but we're still at 128. We're still 50 basis points lower than we were at the highs of the year. So earnings growth is going gangbusters. Now, is that another inflationary indicator? Is it a decent indicator about underlying economic growth in the US? I think yes, isn't it? Isn't it? If you've got your 
biggest 500 companies, the biggest 500 employers probably as well, uh, in the United States private sector, smashing it, smashing that ball way out of the park. Surely that is a growth indicator. It's a good sign, yeah? Well, it's a good sign for the market. The markets are appreciated, or the equity market. We're still at 128. Remember I said to you the previous day, there were two kind of asset classes I mentioned to you this time yesterday that weren't doing that well. One was energy and the other one was cryptos. Well, yesterday's session uh, took that out. I tell you, I have to say, energy rallied strongly. Ignore the small downtick we got today. We went from a high 68 handle to a 72 handle on Brent yesterday. So it really went gangbusters. That's despite real concerns about inventory levels in the United States. Ignore that, it just went up. I mean, yes, we have abated today, but very, very interesting that the threat to $67 on Brent, which was being made uh, at the peak of the Ferrari and the declines on Monday, went out about four or five bucks ahead of that. Big moves. WTI trading at just under $70. Hit $70, of course, as you can see uh, from the screen there as well. Uh, crypto is another one as well. I said, you look, crypto doesn't seem to have rallied just yet as well. 29 and a half. Uh, did we get the crypto? I'm on the board, I beg your pardon, I can't see that one. Okay, let's have a look. Uh, yeah, look, 32,000. So we just literally just put on 2,000 bucks on crypto very, very quickly. Was it to do with what uh, the B Word conference is saying? I don't know. We'll, we'll find out later on. We'll have a little chat to a few people about this one later on as well. Um, and we've got some good sound for you. This is the Asian markets without the Japanese markets. And I've got to say, the Japanese have some of the best holidays in terms of the names of Marine Day, Ocean Day, and basically thanking the ocean for the, uh, the bounty it provides, you know, for uh, a, a, a nation which, of course, relies so much on the sea as well. So we have no Japanese market there on a holiday, well-earned holiday as well. But we do have some pretty strong moves on the South Korean market, on the Kospi, up 1%. The Hang Seng is up 1.4%. A more relaxed response on the Shanghai Composite and mainland China as well. ASX 200 is up around about a percent. But Karen, as I was saying, it's the earnings that have dragged this market higher. And, and really, some really, really big numbers out there, including the companies you're looking at now. Yeah, that was one of the big risks, wasn't it, coming up to earnings season, that we could actually see a beat of even very optimistic numbers. But uh, let's take a look at J&J. As Johnson Johnson reported, a uh, beat on second quarter earnings with revenue rising 27% over year, coming in at over $23 billion. Most of the drug makers' core businesses have now returned to pre-COVID levels. Its medical devices units saw a 62% rise in sales after taking a hit during the pandemic. The company raised its guidance for the year and expects COVID vaccine sales to come in at $2.5 billion. The results come a day after a new study, which is not peer-reviewed, claiming the J&J vaccine is less effective against the Delta and Lambda variants and suggesting a second jab of either the J&J vaccine, Moderna or Pfizer may be required. CFO Joseph Walt told CNBC it's best to wait for official guidance. I think it's probably best for everyone uh, to uh, defer to health officials who have not yet recommended a booster, even for some less duration vaccines out there uh, at this point, who have really the benefit of all the data before we make any conclusions about when and if boosters are needed. Mimon Novartis CEO Vasnara Simon told our U.S. colleagues his company's growth shows the demand for non-COVID related drugs and treatments is returning. When you look at quarter two, we saw a resurgence of demand across many therapeutic areas, uh, really across the board. And you saw that reflected in our performance, 9% sales growth, 
13% uh, core operating income growth. And we remain optimistic that even as we go through various waves of COVID, that the healthcare systems have learned that we need to maintain care for non-communicable diseases, other chronic diseases. Elsewhere, United Airlines predicts that it will also move past pandemic lows, expecting a return to profit in the third quarter. The CEO, Scott Kirby, downplayed the effects of the Delta variant in a CNBC exclusive. We're as confident as we can be. There's certainly more uncertainty than normal uh, given COVID, Delta variant, and we can talk about that. Uh, but we think that by far the most likely outcome is that we continue on this demand recovery, largely unabated, um, and it gives us enough confidence to say we're going to be profitable in the third and fourth quarter, which is an important milestone to get back to. Well, stay tuned on CNBC for more interviews from the big U.S. airlines and the sector's outlook as our colleagues stateside speak to a slew of industry leaders. Starting with an exclusive with American Airlines CEO Doug Parker that is coming away at 13.30 CET. A couple of hours later on, Southwest Airlines Chairman and CEO Gary Kelly will be on the network, followed by the Alaska Airlines CEO later in the day. So a big broad-based uh, view on what the sector is witnessing and what lies ahead from here, Steve. Yeah, Karen, look, I mean, this is going to be without doubt my thematic of the day. Whether anyone else wants to pick up on it is up to them. But we are seeing... U.S. earnings absolutely smashing the ball out of the park. Does that have any relation to what is going on in policy world? There you go. There's my question. The markets are surging again. The equities are having fantastic corporate numbers reported. And yet the policymakers are still in utter crisis mode. The bond traders are responding to that by buying bonds aggressively still because they've got the put from the ECB and from the Fed and from others. So, what about the ECB? What are they going to do? Well, they're hosting their first governing council meeting today since concluding the new strategy, strategy even, <laughs> review. Uh, we're going to head out to Frankfurt for more on policy direction next with our very own Annette. And I hear the podcast is vintage today, Karen. It is, Steve. You can stay up to date with how Europe's blue chips are facing this recovery during earnings season. Be sure to subscribe to the Squawk Box podcast available wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Two doses of the AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine are almost as effective against the Delta variant as they are against Alpha. That is according to a new study from the New England Journal of Medicine, which emphasised the importance of getting two jabs, not just one. The study confirms the findings of a Public Health England study in May, which used real-world data indicates both vaccines are more effective against the variant than originally thought. The data comes as people across France protest against the introduction of COVID passports. France's Prime Minister Jean Castex emphasised the importance of getting cases under control. The world is facing a fourth wave and we must act. And at the same time, we know the key to this problem, and it's not new. The contagiousness of this Delta variant is forcing us to do more. We must vaccinate. 
Anthony Fauci, the director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told CNBC in a first on interview, it was disappointing to see vaccine take up stalling as cases rise again. The frustrating part about this from a public health standpoint is that we have the tools to stop this. And if we do get more people vaccinated, you are going to start seeing a downtick again in the infections. It's really quite frustrating. These vaccines work well against this virus, including the Delta variant. We just need to get more and more people vaccinated. Meanwhile, as cases skyrocket in Indonesia and other countries, Dr. Fauci rejected the idea that richer nations should have to choose between themselves and others when it comes to vaccines. I think we are capable of doing both. I think if we put resources into it and all of the countries who have resources, the developing world puts in enough resources to help the, the low and middle income countries to get vaccinated. I think you can do both. I don't think it has to be a choice one or the other. And for more from our interview with Dr. Fauci, as well as why some local officials in the United States are reimposing mask wearing, you can head to our website, cnbc.com. Right, so the European Central Bank is expected to pledge to stay looser for longer as it aims to raise inflation towards its more flexible 2% target. In the ECB's first governing council meeting, following its strategy review, investors will also be watching for signs the central bank could extend its emergency bond buying scheme, along with other asset purchases, given the ongoing risks posed by the Delta coronavirus variant. Well, Aneta joins us with more on this as well. Annette, um, there is a cynicism uh, in the market, and I'll just read you uh, an element of that cynicism. This is from CMC Markets this morning. Michael Hewson, uh, with virus cases rising again and some parts of the European economy uniquely vulnerable to rising infection rates, it seems highly unlikely, this is the point, it seems highly unlikely that the ECB will ever be in a position to withdraw support at a time when the economic activity remains far from returning to normal. So, just more dovishness to come, I guess, then, Annette. Good morning to you. Looks lovely. Thank you. Uh, yes, most likely more dovishness to come because the new inflation target, which we know since the July 8th um, new strategy, uh, is 2%. And they are also allowing overshooting, not as actively as the Fed, but they're allowing overshooting. And uh, we have seen a decade of inflation below 2%, hovering mostly at like, on average, at 1.2%. So there is a lot of room for the ECB be to actually do more um, in terms of deploying monetary stimulus to the economy, to the market. So, yes, you're right. And uh, the commentator most likely is right that there is more stimulus to come from the ECB if they want to ever reach their inflation target. And of course, a central bank's uh, man mandate is to reach its inflation target. And if they are not, they are losing credibility. And that's the only thing they really do have for the markets. And so the ECB has has to do whatever it takes to use my Draghi's words to reach that inflation target, be it more uh, monetary stimulus, be it more asset purchases, because they are operating, as they call it, at the lower bound in terms of interest rates. They can't do a lot on rates, so they need to do more on extraordinary measures. So for now, as we stand, what we're expecting from the, today, we are expecting an overhaul of their communication, which is 
quite interesting. So you're going to see a completely new introductory statement, which will be crisper, which will be more modern, less jargon. That's at least what we are what we, we are guided for from the ECB. Um, then we are going to hear from them how they are incorporating their new strategy into monetary policy, how they are going to tweak their forward guidance, because clearly a 2% inflation target also has to be reflected in their monetary policy stance. Some commentators, some analysts do even expect that they are going to, we are going to hear more about what happens to the PEP once it will be finished by March next year. But that's an outside opinion or like a remote chance that we're going to hear more about the future of PEP after it will expire. Because clearly, if you look at the minutes, Steve, um, of the ECB, there is a clear division inside the governing council because clearly there are countries like Germany, also like the Netherlands and others who are um, witnessing very high inflation rates right now. And they're saying we don't need more monetary stimulus. It's enough. The economy is doing well and we're going to see a strong recovery. And the others, uh, again, uh, in the periphery, are arguing that it's far too early to withdraw. So it will be an interesting one whether Christine Lagarde will find a compromise. With that, back to you. Thank you very much indeed. I'll read one more line from this same commentator, Mr. Hewson, who's saying this can only be described as a change of style over substance given the ECB's complete lack of success in meeting its previous mandate. And the ECB, I guess, would argue about the counterfactual. Uh, for more analysis from Annette on what to expect from today's ECB, head online to CNBC. Did she write that one, Henley? Yeah, she did. God, oh, it puts me to shame when my colleagues start writing for CNBC.com. I hope none of .com are watching. All right, OK, uh, we will be bringing you the latest decision from the ECB today with Jumana and Juliana. Uh, that decision coming up at 13.30 CET. But if you can't get enough of Veneta, we'll have a look at the next story. We are going to bring it back on this, aren't we, Steve, as uh, Netta is the expert on this as well. As the US and Germany have struck a deal on the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is set to pump gas directly from Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea. Berlin promises to impose sanctions on Moscow if it threatens to jeopardise the energy security of its neighbours, which have until now served as strategic gas transit hubs. Annette, we ask you to put on a different hat now away from the ECB, but uh, there's a truce between the the US and Germany, which is welcome after the Merkel-Biden meeting. But what in reality does it mean if we're talking about potential German sanctions against Russia if there are misdemeanors? Is it possible? Yeah, part of the deal is that the moment Russia uses the energy as a token to um, perhaps spur political instability in Ukraine or trying to mingle um, in the political instability um, of the Ukraine, um, Germany is, uh, well, can trigger sanction. Well, it's not that Germany alone can trigger sanction. And here is, I think, uh, the problem that they have to convince the other European to trigger sanctions on Russia. So it's not like an outright mechanism here. So the deal foresees that there will be a huge fund for the Ukraine to uh, enable them to be a hydrogen um, producer. So essentially, Germany will pay 175 million euro to that fund. And then there will be loans from the state-backed bank KFW here in Germany for that fund to leverage it up for 
for, uh, to a volume of more than 1 billion euro. And that goes directly to the Ukraine so they can like transition their energy system as well. And on top of that, there is a guarantee that Russia will have to use their gas pipelines through the Ukraine also uh, at least until 2024 and then also beyond. That's the plan to ensure that the country will generate revenue and is still used as a transit country for energy uh, um, energy delivery into Germany. Uh, that are so so to say the, the 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 compromises for Ukraine. What it means for Germany is that uh, on, on the positive side, um, energy could actually be um, cheaper in the future. Not only gas, but also electricity. Um, and on top of that is that um, well when we are talking about the um, pr the production and the finishing of the, the, the pipeline, we're going to most likely see a finishing of the pipeline by um, August uh, this year, and, and gas can actually really be delivered by the end of the year to Germany. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.